policing all around the world uh, really was started as in in as an enforcement institution in order to build empire, right? It's a it's a it's a tool of colonization on these lands, a tool of enslavement, and a tool of repressing legitimate rebellion amongst people all around the world. Years ago, growing up in Edmonton, I worked a few summer jobs downtown in public areas where police presence was a fact of life most days at work. Interactions with people and police around the neighborhood were common, going as far as seeing multiple people being asked for their identity, or me getting asked by police if I'd seen someone that fit a certain profile. It wasn't until 2017 that I understood what the process of carding was, when activists with Black Lives Matter Edmonton released data on carding, also known as street checks, which is the practice of stopping someone who isn't suspected of a crime by police and asking for their identification information and later placing that information into police databases that aren't publicly accessible. It's clear that this practice of carding has disproportionately targeted black people in Edmonton from data released in 2017 that found that black Edmontonians are 3.6 times more likely to be street checked than white people, indigenous Edmontonians are four times more likely to be street checked, and indigenous women face the highest rates of carding at 6.5 times the rate of white women. The call for banning carding was loud and clear four years ago, and in November 2020, UCP Justice Minister Casey Madu banned carding in Alberta, and while this may seem like a win, Police are still allowed to use street checks, which essentially are the same practice as carding. It's important to know that police still have a mandate to stop people who aren't accused or suspected of a crime, but now have to follow guidelines for stopping people. The topic of carding also fits in within the larger scope of policing, and how policing has infringed upon many areas of our lives, including wellness checks, which is the practice of police showing up to mental health distress calls, and often inflicting more damage than they do help. So with that being said, today's interview is with Harsha Walia, the voice you heard at the beginning of the show, and the executive director of the BC Civil Liberties Association, a legal organization working to advance human rights across Canada. In my interview with Harsha, we talked about the disturbing future of police surveillance, and also about why the idea of continued reforms to policing such as changes like carding into street checks, really are futile in the face of an organization that has clearly shown that it's unable to reform itself. I also want to mention that in our interview, Harsha mentioned an RCMP report that she said was released last month. Since the interview was recorded in December, that month would have been November when the RCMP report was released. The audio quality for this interview isn't the best, since I was in the middle of a move in December and didn't have access to all my audio gear. But I promise future interviews will be easier on your ears. So with that being said, here's my interview with Harsha. For, for anyone who hasn't heard of the BC Civil Liberties Association, or I guess any Civil Liberties Association, um, what kind of work do you do on a day-to-day basis? The BC Civil Liberties Association, uh, we're the oldest and most active civil liberties organization in the country. Um, and though our name is uh, has BC in it and we're BC-based, our scope is actually across the country. Um, and what we do is mainly use um, the law 
uh, in order to advance civil liberties and human rights. And so that means we show up in the courts. Uh, it means that we do law and policy reform advocacy with governments. Uh, we do public legal education. We, uh, you know, assist in many instances when people have legal questions. Um, and civil liberties, you know, are basically those kind of fundamental aspects um, of our lives where we don't want uh, the state and the government to intervene. So, you know, for example, the right to be free of state surveillance is increasingly an issue, um, you know, to not have the uh, governments creeping up on our privacy rights, um, to have the freedom to associate, uh, you know, so for unions to form, for us to be able to take to the streets when there's an injustice that we're upset about. So that's really what civil liberties is about, is to be free of um, unjustifiable and unreasonable state intrusion. Uh, and then of course we have a human rights mandate because we recognize that those who are most likely, those communities who are most likely to be impacted um, by the violation of their rights are of course oppressed communities. So people who are oppressed by race, class, gender, sexuality, and more. Um, and so we, uh, we, our kind of priority is to ensure that the civil liberties and human rights of communities who have been marginalized by state and social power um, are able to advance those rights in the best of the, and to support them in doing that. And so when it comes to uh, some of your recent campaigns, I saw that um, you're doing a campaign in Vancouver currently around carding. Do you want to talk about the situation regarding carding uh, generally in Canada? You know, and carding is, uh, it has so many different names in different kind of places and provinces and jurisdictions. And, you know, those different names really just point to the fact that it's uh, such an arbitrary process that there's not even a consistent name. So, you know, in Ontario, for example, it's more commonly referred to as carding. In Vancouver and BC, it's more commonly referred to as street checks. And elsewhere, you have the same kind of um, differences. But really, uh, I'll talk about the BC context, but it can be applied with some variation to everywhere. So in BC, street checks are the practice of stopping somebody outside of a police investigation. So, you know, it's not linked to an arrest or an investigative detention, um, which is also problematic, but um, for the sake of this conversation. Uh, so it's the stopping by police of people outside of an investigative or arrest context where people are stopped. Um, they can be asked for their private information, being asked for their identification. And that information is often then recorded into a police database. Um, the other thing that's important to note about street checks, um, and again, in BC, but also elsewhere, is that you can actually be street checked without being stopped or even knowing that the police are doing it. So for example, they could be parked on the corner of a street, particularly communities uh, that they target, you know, what they call quote unquote problem neighborhoods, which we know really are, you know, neighborhoods that are marked by, um, by race and class-based profiling. And so, you know, they can just be parked on that corner, writing people up. So they could say, you know, spotted so-and-so on the corner of, you know, First and Second Avenue. Um, so you might not even know that you're actually being street checked. You've now been entered into a police database uh, without even your knowledge. But most street checks, of course, are the ones that people experience um, where the police stop them. And, you know, across the country, year after year, we continue to see the people who are most targeted uh, by police street checks are Indigenous and Black people um, and also people who are low income. So communities that, you know, where police have a constant kind of presence um, because they're low income neighborhoods that may be marked by, for example, substance use uh, or sex work. 
Um, and so, you know, street checks are very clearly a form, it is indisputable that they are a form of anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism, um, that they are essentially a pipeline to ongoing criminalization, right? So once you're street checked, you're in this police database, you may or may not know about it. The next time you're picked up, that kind of escalates, it eventually leads to an arrest, and then we know all the way through the criminal legal system, uh, Black and Indigenous and homeless and low-income people continue to then face that compounding criminalization, right, of incarceration, arrest, detention, sentencing, um, and more. And so a street check can really become the kind of front end of an entire experience in the criminal legal system. Um, and it's a very, it's a clearly racist tool. And also it's illegal. So in BC, there is no statute or common law that authorizes the police to conduct street checks. So this year, they started to say street checks are quote unquote voluntary, which means you will be, you may be street checked, but you can voluntarily walk away. You don't have to provide information. Now, of course, that's absurd, right? So most people who are being stopped by the police, and then again, even more so, uh, if you come from an experience where you know that uh, experiences with the police can escalate very quickly, and you know you feel like you need to comply. Um, then that, that sense of voluntariness completely evaporates, right? You don't actually feel like you can walk away from a cop asking you a question. Um, so, you know, it's kind of this, uh, this kind of legal gray zone where they're saying, oh, okay, well, we're not, we don't, it's not required that you have to provide information, but you can voluntarily give it. And so in our view, that makes no sense because someone, even if they're not legally detained, will psychologically feel detained. Um, and so, you know, our position is that we don't need to continue to kind of reform street checks. We don't need more of these kinds of processes where they say, oh, don't worry, it's voluntary. Um, but we need to just completely ban it. It's a racist practice and it's a completely illegal practice. I've read um, a few things about how police technology is expanding to include things like remote cell phone surveillance just based on, you know, cars on the street, um, people uh, obviously being carded and that being an invasion of privacy if their information gets to a database. But um, what issues um, have you been working on recently? Um, or how is technology evolving to potentially put more power into policing and, and it, yeah, just surveilling um, citizens? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the piece with technology is that absolutely um, the use of digital technologies and algorithmic policing by law enforcement um, is something we need to be incredibly aware of. Um, and just like the example of when you might be getting street checked and you don't even know about it because the cops are watching you on the street um, and then you get entered into a database, what is so insidious, even though the kind of, you know, we don't experience it kind of as, a, as a, an immediate bodily experience, um, but what is so insidious about technological surveillance is that it's happening all the time when we don't even know, right? Like we're not even aware because we're not coming face to face um, with that officer. Um, and, you know, there's a number of, of issues that are of concern. You know, there's been at least two controversies this year, significant major ones and many more that we don't even likely know about. Uh, the first was clear the use of Clearview AI technologies, the really controversial facial recognition technologies. Um, by law enforcement um, across Canada, like so many departments was found were using it. And in some instances have been using it for up to 18 years, uh, which is a very long time. And, you know, at first they denied it. It was only until the media investigated and investigated. And, you know, the New York Times did that huge bombshell investigation um, that revealed that Canada was also contracting Clearview AI. 
um, that that information came forward. And, you know, there's so much that was problematic about, uh, about law enforcement's use of Clearview AI um, in terms of people's privacy rights, the fact that facial recognition is an inherently anti-Black technology, that, you know, facial recognition technology works in such a way uh, that Black people are more likely to be impacted by false positives. Um, so that essentially means that law enforcement is uh, falsely um, adding to anti-Black racism in policing through this technology, right? So we know Black people are, are criminalized through the criminal legal system, and then you have a facial recognition technology whose entire algorithm um, is anti-Black. And so, um, you know, what ended up happening is there was an unprecedented um, investigation initiated by several federal and provincial privacy commissioners into law enforcement's RCMP's use of Clearview AI, um, but then Clearview AI pulled out of Canada. So that investigation never was never concluded because they just said that they were withdrawing their services. Um, which is important. And at the same time, now we have this massive knowledge gap. Um, and so our organization and many others have, in light of that, uh, been calling for a complete moratorium and ban that needs to be instituted at the federal and provincial level um, on the use of any facial recognition technology or surveillance-based technology by policing, uh, policing forces across Canada. Um, and then just last week, it was unearthed that the RCMP in Nova Scotia have been using a, um, a technology called uh, WITSET. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the acronym right, but mm. it's basically a technology and software to unlock uh, people's private friend lists on Facebook in order to generate um, you know, social maps of people whom the RCMP in Nova Scotia wanted to surveillance and target. Um, and so, you know, we have just this week called for investigation into the use of this technology. Um, and, you know, all of this, and this was done again, these are also private contractors who are like now making a killing. So it's also, it's privacy concerns, it's concerns around criminalization, it's concerns around, um, you know, this kind of public-private partnership that um, generates profit for private companies. Um, so we're calling for a moratorium on the use of that surveillance and a full investigation into how these contracts are even procured. Um, but absolutely, I mean, those are just two examples. Um, but for anyone who's interested, uh, Citizen Lab did a fantastic report this summer uh, detailing the whole landscape of algorithmic policing in Canada with examples from literally every province in this country. Um, you know, CCTV cameras, just so many aspects of algorithmic policing and surveillance. I would really encourage people to look at it because it's quite harrowing. I mean, it's overwhelming because it's so um, seemingly intangible, right? You're like, what do I, what do I do with this? How do I stop this? Um, mm -hmm. But they also have important recommendations about the kind of systemic solutions that we need uh, in light of this. And really, it comes down to just, um, in my view, a, a ban on all of these technologies. Like, there has to be bans that are implemented at the government level. When it, when it comes to things like that, that would potentially alleviate um, the problems that we have with policing in Canada. Provincial policy, the provincial laws, like in the Police Act in Alberta, are, are just very antiquated. So what kind of changes um, do you see are necessary in legislation um, in BC and Canada in general? Yeah. And I'll have to say, you know, some of the work that we're doing right now is trying to figure out, like, what are the things that we can... Uh, tweak in ways that are substantive because you know you also see all these reforms year after year 
you know, reforms like body-worn cameras, where it just means the police end up getting more money, and then they, you know, either turn off the cameras or in fact, it doesn't prevent them from doing anything, um, mm. as happened with Chief Alan Adam, right, in, in Fort Chippewan in Alberta, um, where he was assaulted and it was caught on a, not a body-worn camera, but a dash cam. Mm -hmm. So we are very aware of, you know, how to, what kind of reforms can we call on that doesn't increase the scale and scope of policing? Um, so the kinds of legislative reforms uh, that we're interested in are ones that work towards reducing the scale and scope of policing. Um, and so some of them are, uh, you know, things like a ban on street checks, things like a ban um, on the use of any kind of surveillance and algorithmic policing by law enforcement uh, and law enforcement, including, you know, border enforcement and, and other kinds of law enforcement, municipal police forces, bylaw officers, et cetera. Um, the third is, uh, you know, really revamping a number of laws that increase criminalization. So for example, you know, uh, such a big part of, um, checks and surveillance and kind of racial-based profiling and class-based profiling is the criminalization of drugs and sex work. Um, so, you know, decriminalizing simple drug possession, decriminalizing sex work, for example, those are important legislative changes. Um, that means that people are taken out of criminalized economies, right? Um, another uh, piece of that is, you know, truly genuine and enforceable and independent civilian oversight there was a study that came out this year um, that showed on average um, over 80% of um, officers who are tasked with civilian independent oversight over you know, various provincial law enforcement bodies are actually former police officers. Um, and so you know, the fact that we have independent oversight that's not independent, that's not civilian, um, is uh, is abhorrent, you know, so we do need more robust oversight, but ones that we can genuinely have faith in, right? Not like these examples that I gave earlier of the police board, um, but bodies that are truly independent from the police have no past or current affiliation with officers, I think is very important, right? Anyone who's ever worked for a police force should not be able to have oversight over the police. That's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> So, you know, things like that and enforceable, like you said, right? So if there is misconduct, then nothing actually happens. They're just a report that sits on a shelf. Um, so it has to be enforceable mechanisms, not people getting promoted. Um, you know, it was really shocking. The report that just came out on sexual assault in the RCMP, um, you know, it was this unprecedented report that came out last month. Um, and this is, you know, the sexual assault, the systemic sexual assault of women officers in the RCMP. You can imagine what that looks like on the ground for marginalized communities. Um, and there was a historic settlement because there was uh, just such a large number of uh, RCMP female officers who reported being sexually assaulted. Um, and in that final report, which was independent, um, you know, the, the authors of that report uh, basically called the RCMP a hierarchical paramilitary organization that has no chance of reforming. That is a damning indictment um, based on, you know, testimony after testimony after testimony. And the other thing that they found that I thought was appalling um, was that they said that there were instances of, uh, of significant sexual violence um, where those officers were shifted to a new detachment and promoted, that there was a culture of promotion when dealing with sexual assaults in the force, right? So 
these kinds of things are, they're disgusting. They're completely disgusting. And again, they're just the tip of the iceberg, right? So these are the, the cases and the incidents that are actually um, making it to an investigative stage. We know so many don't even make it there. Um, so this is the kind of deeply entrenched racist and misogynist culture of policing, um, which is why, you know, I don't think that it can be reformed, that we need to look at radically reducing the scale and scope of policing. Um, another thing that comes to mind is, you know, banning police from doing wellness checks. You know, this is the year where people in Canada became aware that police attend when there's a mental health crisis. Most people didn't know that when people are going through a mental health crisis and you call 911, you might end up with a cop at your door who's armed, who's not at all trained to deal with the mental health crisis, right? And so, you know, we have to call for a ban on police being involved in issues that they have no, you know, not only are they armed agents of the state who will only escalate a situation, no one is going to feel more de-escalated and calm when they're going through a crisis, um, when they see an armed officer. Um, and they have no skill set, you know, like, I wish I could just go out on the street and suddenly become a firefighter, you know, like that makes no sense. They have no skill set to do this. And so we actually have to completely take the cops out of institutions like healthcare, like schools, right? The fact that there's cops in schools who are filling the gaps of counselors and after school programming, like all of this is awful. Um, or um, police who are collaborating with border and immigration enforcement. We got to take them out of all of those social spaces um, where they're kind of blurring the line and saying that they're kind of de facto social workers. They're not. Is there, is there anything else about the work that you do um, or that your organization does that you think listeners should know about um, or any aspect of policing right now in Canada that you think needs to, you know, have a kind of larger reach to people? I'd say two things. Uh, one is that I think it's really important uh, that people in Canada not uh, assume that what happens in uh, Canada is somehow different than the rest of the world. Policing is a global phenomenon. This isn't just about, say, the United States. Um, if we look historically, I'm not going to go into a history lesson, um, but policing all around the world uh, really was started as, in, in, as an enforcement institution in order to build empire, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a tool of colonization on these lands, a tool of enslavement, and a tool of repressing legitimate rebellion amongst people all around the world. Um, so policing tactics, uh, we really have to view in the long view of history, not just the kind of, um, you know, the friendly cop on the street who you think's waving to your kid on Canada Day kind of stuff, right? Like, that's not what it is. We have to understand policing in a historical and global lens uh, and what its function has been and that it hasn't changed since then, right? Like the names have stayed the same, the functions have stayed the same. Um, that's the first thing is that that's so important and not to kind of have an ahistoric and uh, kind of like, oh, but Canada is better than the US kind of lens on these issues. Um, and the second thing is for people to really know that when there are radical demands for, for example, to abolish the police or to defund the police, um, those are actually quite reasonable <laughs> because there's nothing more uh, unreasonable, arguably, than continuing to demand a reform in an institution that cannot be reformed. And that's not just me saying that, you know, I, again, talked about this very high level institutionally important report that came out about the RCMP where, you know, former justices like Supreme Court 
justices, judges are seeing this as a hierarchical paramilitary organization. Um, you know, that that is an, in, this is a structural problem. Um, and so it's so important that we, that it is, that it is not um, radical to say, hey, let's like start from scratch, right? Like if we really truly want safety, what do we need to build in order to have safety? No one who's saying, none of the kind of conversations that are cast as anti-police or anti-safety. They're in fact very pro-safety. They're in fact very pro-community. And it comes from a deep commitment to safety and community and care um, that the critiques of the police emerge. And so it's very important to delink police from safety because those who are advocating against expansion of police power are very committed to safety. One of the big takeaways from this episode for me is the need to limit the scope and scale of policing. As a powerful institution with millions of dollars at their disposal, police departments can create justifications not only to acquire surveillance technology like cameras and AI, but also to expand their scope into things like wellness checks, which go into the sector of mental health and well-being. Since we know that years and years and years of reform still hasn't delivered the results that we need in policing, I think it's clear that defunding the police is the alternative that people need to look for. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Is This For Real? A special thank you to Harsha for joining me for an interview for today's show, and thank you to listeners who have supported the show so far through Patreon. We'll be back with another episode in February.